orange it. All right, here's question one. I had to think a lot about this one. Does the Bible talk about corporate restitution like when a nation invades a land? Now, I had to read all sorts of stuff about this. Uh, what is what is restitution? Restitution is kind of like when you make up for doing something you've done wrong. So let's say that you borrow my ukulele, right, my nice one, and you scratch it all up, and you say, I'm really sorry for scratching it all up, and I say, ah, oh, look, thanks for saying sorry, but what are you going to do about it? And you say, well, I'll buy you a new one. No worries, sold. Or maybe I'm really sorry, I'll buy you four. No worries, I'm really happy you broke it in the first place. That's restitution. And uh, there's a famous guy, Zacchaeus. I even think it might have been in, in uh, Graham's sermon a couple of weeks ago when I was away. Anyone here who was listening, and he did mention, okay, good, that's the link. I was away, so you don't miss church like me. Uh, but because Zacchaeus said this in Luke 19, uh, he stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Uh, Here's a guy who was a cheat, a bad cheat. He became a Christian and he realised that he had to fix up his life and he did it in a pretty powerful way. So he went out and he said, I'm going to actually give back to people I've cheated and give them not just what they owed, what I took away from them, but a whole lot more. But that's personal restitution. And the person who asked this question is, what about when a whole nation hurts another nation? How about that? Uh, Well, uh, can you think of any situations where that might apply, say, to Australia? Think about what happened over 200 years ago. There's a lot of talk about how it is that we um, are able to have... Do we have any restitution formally, corporately, with the First Nations people, our Indigenous brothers and sisters? Well, I think that's where the question's coming from. It's a good one. It turns out that there is a time in the Bible, at least one, where there is a corporate restitution. Now, that's a really nerdy expression. You might want to use it on your friends, you know. How's your corporate restitution going? They'll go, huh? But here in Ezra, it says, Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to help these elders of the Jews as they rebuild this temple of God. You must pay the full construction costs without delay from my taxes collected in the province west of the Euphrates River so that the work will not be interrupted. Uh, what has happened is King Darius says, oh, look, I really feel a bit bad that the people who came before me in history smashed up all the Jewish stuff. I might think we'll go in there and help them out and really help them out. So away they go. That's an example of it. But what about us? What does it mean for modern nations like our own and our relationship to the First Nations people of Australia? Well, we are people as Christians who care about reconciliation, aren't we? Well, we are. We want to work out how to bring together people who have been hurt. When you know Jesus, that's what you do. And that is the case, even if it's from events that happened centuries ago. Uh, I know that there is still hurt between the First Nations people of Australia, our Indigenous people, and those whose ancestors came and took their land. And so we who care about reconciliation should care about that hurt and seek reconciliation and forgiveness. This is the right attitude for those who have been forgiven by Christ and have been reconciled with him and others through his blood. There have been uh, prayers and, and requests for forgiveness in, and through history. 
and it was the right thing to do and it's right for us to continue to have that same attitude of repentance. But what about restitution? Should we act on behalf of those who lived many years ago, especially if we continue to benefit from their acts of harm? It's complicated, don't you think? (laughs) It's not an easy one, is it? It's not really realistic at all to completely reverse the effects of the British settlement in Australia in the 1700s. We can't just say, OK, hit control Z, undo, let's put it back as it was. Uh, Too much water's gone under the bridge. But it is right for us to seek reconciliation with our First Nations people whenever we can. In a very, very timely document, uh, Mark Thompson, who is the, um, he's the principal of Moore College, which is where I studied theology, uh, he wrote a paper for the Doctrine Commission of uh, the Diocese of Sydney. And I only got it in my email about a week ago, and I happened to be reading it thinking, that reminds me of a question I've got to answer. Here's a paragraph he said. He's, it's a great little read. If you want it, I'll, I'll point you out the link. But he says this. Lots of big words, so buckle up. Critical in the process of reconciliation is a genuine recognition of the need for reconciliation and a proper acknowledgement of the guilt that attaches not only to the actions of the past, but to the benefit that continues to be enjoyed as a result of those actions in the present. And he goes on to basically say, we are people of reconciliation and it's at the cross that we find that reconciliation and that is where we need to be proclaiming and, um, and that's kind of where we get to. And I, th- I think that's right. Ultimately, it's at the cross that we experience this fully and we should be people who are of reconciliation and seek reconciliation. A bit of a changing gear. Question two. What is the difference between the 39 Articles and the Westminster Confession? A lot of you ask me this question all the time. That's not true at all. Um, but uh, who's heard of the 39 Articles before? Give me a bit of a nod ahead. Okay, cool, cool. The 39 Articles, we would have a prayer book here, but we don't because they're all sort of in COVID safe, safe land. But the back of our green prayer book has 39 Articles. They're little statements, pithy statements that say what it is that Anglicans believe about God, Jesus, the Bible and stuff like that. It's, it's actually, it's the, it's the statement of belief for Anglicans. It says, you know, we love the Bible and here's how we understand the Bible. And, you know, heaven and hell and all that sort of stuff. The Westminster Confession is another long, long document. Actually, it's a lot longer than the 39 Articles. And it's got a lot of similar stuff. It's a statement of belief. Uh, It was written about 100 years later in the uh, 17th century. And it's actually the thing that the Prezies love. So the Presbyterians in Australia in particular see it as their main doctrine, a a doctrine statement. Uh, You might think, uh, blah, blah, blah. These are really helpful little documents. And uh, I encourage you at some stage in your life, at some point, to have a look at the 39 articles. Uh, They're good stuff. And the Westminster Confession's good as well. But it's not ours quite the same way. Question three. Why is God called the Father of Lights in James 1.17? You ever think about God that way when you talk about God? Dear Heavenly Father, the Father of Lights. Uh, I don't reckon it's one that I naturally comes off my tongue. What does it mean? Well, I think it actually means that it's God who is the father of, as sort of like the one who has given, you know, who's the dad of the lights, and not not sort of these things, but but the, the stars. 
So it's, it's the one who created the stars. I think that's what father of lights means. And that's why I like the New Living Translation, because sometimes it says it like this. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow, which means he's reliable. He makes the stars, you know, well, he's been around some time. Forever and ever, in fact. Finally, what happened to Paul when he was caught up in the third heaven? Another easy question. You're rolling him down the aisle at me. Um, 2 Corinthians 12 says this. I, this is Paul. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. God only knows. Anybody else being caught up into the third heaven? Uh, didn't think so, nor have I. Um, uh, what was Paul's experience? He goes on to say, yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body, but I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. He's had this incredible experience. He doesn't know much about it anyway, but it was a wow experience. It was a big thing for him. What's the point of it? The cool thing is, I tell you what, if I was caught up into the third heaven, I reckon I would be letting you know about it on Facebook. I reckon everyone I'd I'd, I'd ring up, win news and say, you've got to talk to me. I've been to the third heaven. Come and see me. You can make a time and bring your cameras. But Paul says that experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. I will boast only about my weaknesses. And and this is a core part of uh, 2 Corinthians. Check it out. I I love that. What does he boast about? His weaknesses. And he goes on to say, it's actually my disability that I'm going to boast about. The thorn in my side. That we're not really sure exactly what that is either. I think that was another question you asked me. But we see here an extraordinary time. And we don't know enough about it. But we do know that it's not the thing that Paul glories in. Thanks for listening to Jamaloo and the Lane Church.